What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset, your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. So here we are on episode 49 of the show. Last week, I was talking with Adam Lawrence, and I think you guys will agree that was a masterclass in in property investing and just growing and scaling your business. I was really impressed. I've actually been looking at the stats and it looks like it's going to be a very, very popular episode. It's it's kind of ramping up the uh, the listenership and um, he's neck and neck currently with Kevin McDonald, who was on the week before, but already the two of them have passed the guest that appeared the week before that or whatever. So interesting. I'm keeping an eye on it, but um, just thought this week, rather than bringing a guest on, it does happen to be Easter. And um, so today was Saturday, tomorrow is Easter Sunday. And uh, so I I thought, okay, rather than spend a lot of time on uh, Easter doing um, doing a podcast, I'll come into the office, I'll quickly record this and just get some some thoughts out there to you guys and uh, and then kind of get on with my weekend and let you all enjoy your Easter, assuming that's something that you celebrate. Today, we're going to be talking about wholesaling. And what I mean by that is the real estate wholesaling that you hear about on the internet. And um, there's a there's a character on YouTube who I have watched in the past called Max Maxwell. And he talks about wholesaling and all this kind of stuff. So I got a question a little while back um, from one of our Facebook group members, uh, Kevin Coyne, and he asked about wholesaling. So I'm going to get into that today. Before I do, just want to give a quick shout out to Seamus in Australia, who reached out to me today to the meetup group. And um, to those of you who don't know what that is, it's the, there's a link down in the show notes, and it's basically meetup.com. I have a group there called Behind the Facade. And I've been talking uh, about putting a sort of a meetup together, some sort of a Zoom call. And um, so anyway, Seamus wrote to me and said he'd love to be involved in that. So I thought I'd say give him a quick shout out. But also just going to let you guys know that I am planning to organize some kind of a Zoom meetup where I will basically anyone who's coming onto the call will be able to ask questions and get answers from me advice from me, coaching, deal advice, you know, um, anything that you're interested in putting to me and getting a, a sort of a direct answer back on. And if you don't mind other people being on the call, then you're most welcome to present that. That is something that I am not going to announce here in the podcast. It's only going to be the details will only be sent out either through the meetup.com group, uh, which you'll find in the show notes below. So if you want to join that, or you can sign up to my email list, which you'll find at www.gavinjgallagher.com forward slash go. So if you signed up to the newsletter or, well, I don't really do a newsletter, but that's how I will be announcing these. It'll not be something that's on the podcast because, um, you know, people listen to the podcast, you know, perhaps weeks after it has been aired. So it's not really good place to put dated um, to announce kind of dates and times and stuff because you just don't know when someone's going to be listening to it. So anyway, guys, that's just a little bit of a, an update on that. Getting back to the question that Kevin posed, and that is wholesaling. Now, when he asked the question, 
about wholesaling. At the time, my only experience of wholesaling was actually here in the Irish market during the the kind of the early 2000s when we were going through this massive boom and everyone was kind of thinking that it was easy to make money and money kind of seemed to be falling from the sky. And this was a, effectively a way of financing the um, the developments that people were doing. And so, you know, I was involved in things like this as well. You, you would go to your bank looking for funding for, say, a development deal. And uh, if it was going to be a deal that was, say, a commercial deal, which I was mostly doing, the bank were always more comfortable giving you any kind of money out if you had some sort of deal secured with a tenant. So in my case, I would go out and I would try to secure tenants before I went looking for the uh, the financing for the deal, because otherwise you could go and build this building and be stuck with an empty building. So the bank didn't want to be on the hook for that. They would always sort of say, look, we would like you to have, say, an anchor tenant who is paying the rent and who is secured before we actually give you that loan. Now, in the case of apartment building development, slightly different because you're obviously selling off uh, the apartments and you would go to the bank, you would say you'd like to borrow, you know, say 100% of the of the cost of the construction. And the bank would say to you, yeah, sure, no problem, but it is subject to, say, 20% of the units being pre-sold. And that would be where you'd be kind of stuck. You'd be thinking, okay, how can I sell units when the building hasn't even started off out of the ground? Uh, I don't have title to give. So one of the issues is like if you go to places like Spain where it's quite normal to pay for an apartment in phases and you make what's known as stage payments. And so you go along to Spain, you find this nice you know, brochure saying this is what your apartment's going to look like. This is the view you're going to have, which will be you know, created by some sort of a drone shot or whatever. And you kind of say, yeah, oh, yeah, I'd really like that. So here's 20,000. And uh, and then in six months time, we're going to ask for another 20,000. And then in six months time, we'll look for 50,000. And because the building is kind of going along and it's getting closer and closer to completion. And then on the last day, when the building is being handed over to you, you hand over the final payment. And then that's it. You now own the apartment. Now, the only problem with this is that it is only really suited to people who have cash to actually pay in total for the apartment. If you need a mortgage to pay for this kind of thing, it doesn't work because mortgages are only given when the title deeds are actually being handed over. So in this particular case, the only way most people were doing that is they were going to their own home and they were going to the bank and they were saying, look, I've got a hundred thousand tied up in equity in my home. I'd like to release that equity out, please. And the bank would you know, basically do like a second mortgage or whatever, and you would get a hundred thousand out in cash to yourself. Now, all you've done is increase the size of your mortgage on your principal property at home, but now you have a hundred grand of cash in your pocket and you could go off and you could make these stage payments and you could end up with a nice holiday home in Spain. Now, for most people that are buying an apartment, uh, say, say it's not a holiday home or something like that. Say this is your principal private residence, say that you're a first time buyer, or even if you're just a person who is like trading up and going to a bigger place, most people, like the majority of people will only be able to fund that with a mortgage. And you know, in order to pay for that, you, you have to have your own deposit and then you have to have a mortgage for the balance. And the only way the mortgage is going to be paid out is when the building is complete and the title deeds are available to be transferred to the mortgage holder. So that is where wholesaling 
came in back in the day. And what they would do is they would take, um, you know, you would say, say if your bank was saying, look to the developer, you need to sell pre-sell 20% of all your units before we'll actually give you the, the, you know, the money that you want. So the guy would go to a wholesaler, say, look, I need to sell 20% of the units, say if you're building an apartment building with 100 units, that's 20 units. So instead of going out and trying to find 20 separate buyers, you just went to this one single buyer and say, look, here you go, I need you to commit to buying 20 apartments before anything is done, before a hole is put in the ground or anything. And these guys, this was the business that they were in. They would go and sign a contract committing to buying the 20 apartments and that would be it. The guy would then take that contract to the bank and say, there you go, I've sold 20 of the apartments. Now, the reality is, is that there was a big discount because anyone coming along and buying 20 apartments in one go, he's probably buying 18 apartments. Um, he's probably paying for 18 apartments and he's getting two thrown in for free or something like that. There was always a sweetener, obviously, for the person who was kind of making this kind of big commitment because it was allowing you to finance your deal and whatever. Now, one of the things that you would put into that uh, agreement is that the guy is not going to compete with you when it comes to selling. So when you have the other 80 apartments on the market for sale, you're not going to have your, you know, your, your, your wholesaler that helped you put this deal together. You're not going to have him coming along and undercutting you on prices and stuff because he wants out. He has got to go and wait until you've sold a certain number of apartments before he can release any of his into the market. And most of the time, these were people that were actually quite happy to rent them out and just hold on to them as a kind of a long-term cash thing. So all of that said, it's not what Kevin was actually asking about. And um, I've, I've, that was my limited understanding of the term wholesaling. But since I do kind of watch a very bit of YouTube and I've followed a guy called Max Maxwell. I've also followed a, a young lady called Lily Invests is her channel. And um, she's actually got a lot of information on this. And when I actually went through it, I realized that wholesaling is really a US term for what we call deal sourcing in the UK. So whether it's a wholesaling or whether it's deal sourcing, what you're effectively doing is identifying opportunities for an investor to come in and and make a good purchase and actually secure a deal. But you, you you yourself may not have the funds to actually secure the deal, but instead of walking away from the deal because you don't have the money for it, what you're gonna actually do is enter into a contract with the owner of the property. And what you do is you make sure it's an assignable contract. And then what you can do is you can go out there and you can find an investor and you basically assign the contract to them. So it's their uh, it's their requirement to go in and close the deal on the property. But what you do is you get a fee for finding this kind of sweet deal. And uh, and you, you, you agree a fee with someone for that. Now, there are many different people listening to this podcast around the world. So laws are going to differ substantially from one place to the next. So I'm not going to give you a detailed A to Z on how it works, because the reality is there could be different laws in different places. You might need to have... Um, you know, you might need a license to do this in certain countries or in certain states or whatever. So, and and certainly I know in Ireland, I think you need to be a chartered um, auctioneer or a state agent or something like that to be able to sell property. So this is something that you need to go and examine yourself. I'm not going to do that for you, but I will break down more or less how it works for the purpose of just uh, giving you guys a better idea. First of all, one of the things that I learned when I was back in college is contract law. And just to understand contract law in its most basic form, 
there is a buyer, there is a seller, and there's a thing called consideration. So if I agree to sell my car for 50 euro, um, I'm the seller, and a buyer comes along and says, oh, I like the idea of buying your car for 50 euro. Yes, I'll do that. And if he gives you 50 euro, that's consideration. The payment is consideration. And um, that is a legal contract that, and it doesn't matter whether it's written down or whether it's just a verbal contract. There was a buyer, there was a seller, and there was a uh, consideration. And so you have fulfilled your end of the bargain and he has to fulfill his end of the bargain. And that's it. That's the simple reality of it. Now, when it comes to real estate or property, certainly in the Irish market, you cannot do that unless it is written down. So somebody can come along and say, oh, you, you agreed to sell me your property for one for one euro or one pound or whatever. It has to be a written contract that has actually been signed in front of you know uh, witnesses and things like that. So that is one thing that can't be done. But breaking down into the different types of deals that there is, there's going to be an exclusive or a non-exclusive deal, and there's going to be an assignable or a non-assignable deal. And what I mean by that, by exclusive, it means that you have essentially tied up the deal exclusively for yourself, so the owner cannot sell it on to another party. Now, this means that an investor basically cannot go behind your back and meet the owner of the property directly and try to get it for a better price. This is yours, you have secured the deal, and the owner is only able to deal with you and nobody else. Now, in order to do that, that is kind of like what I've just mentioned before. You have to, there has to be consideration in that. And what you're essentially doing is, is that you're buying and he is selling and there's consideration. Now, you, you might offer him the price of the property, but the reality is you don't have the money. So what you're looking for is the ability to enter into a contract with him that's exclusive, but you're going to go out and find somebody to actually complete the deal. And it's important that he is aware of that because when he's, when you're signing an, an agreement, you better make sure that it's assignable or you're on the hook to actually close the deal. Now, non-exclusive means that the owner of the property can decide to go along and sell it to anybody. So you might be out there talking to investors and doing all this kind of stuff. And unbeknownst to you, the owner of the property has actually just agreed a deal this morning and the deal is no longer on the market. And that could be a lot of egg in your face if that does happen to be the case. So you can A, lose a deal, and B, you don't really have any leverage over the investor. Like this is basically, it's like an open market deal. Anybody could come along and find it. What value are you bringing to the investor if this is something that's just out there in the market and anyone can have it? So, um, and it also puts you in a weak position because basically guys can go behind your back and try and cut you out of the deal. So non-exclusive is not the way to go about it if you can at all avoid it. Now, by assignable, as I mentioned, you are, say, say we'll say that there's three parties here. There's party A, party B, and party C. Party A is the owner. Party B is you. But party C is the person that's actually going to close the deal. But what you have is you've got a contract between party A and party B. You're the guy who wants to buy the property from party A, but you don't have the money to do it. So you're going to pass that contract on to party C. And this is what I, what I mean by assignable. Now, the huge benefit of being assignable is that you don't actually have to close the deal yourself. So you don't need to go out and raise money. You don't need to go and pay taxes. You don't need to pay 
for lawyers and all that kind of stuff, you basically get the investor to pay all of those. But you have to be able to sign, assign the contract to him legally. And, um, and so that is the disadvantage of that is that the investor can see exactly how much profit you were making on transferring or assigning the deal to him. Now, it's usually not a problem because in the event that a investor, um, you know, you've found him a good deal, he stands to make some good money on it and therefore he shouldn't begrudge you earning your fee. But the reality is, is that if you've done, if you're, if you're being greedy, we'll say, and say you're actually standing to make more from your fee than the actual, you know, investor stands to earn out of the deal himself, then that is going to stand out like a sore thumb. And if he is the guy putting down all the cash, doing all this kind of stuff, he's going to balk at the idea of you making out like abandoned and him actually getting less for the deal. So you want to make sure that you're not being greedy or you're going to find that it's a pretty short relationship with your investor. Lastly, the um, the contract that is not assignable. And this could be the condition that, uh, you know, I've dealt with um, investors or I've dealt with owners of property before whose lawyer usually sticks in that is non-assignable. And this is for exactly this reason. They want to make sure that their client gets the maximum benefit. And so if somebody is, you know, trying to sell on the deal to somebody else, that it's just not possible to do that without actually giving additional money to the owner. So that's something that could come up. And if that is the case, then you would need to tread very carefully because you are actually going to be on the hook to close this deal in its entirety. And so if you don't have the money to do that, you could find yourself in breach of contract. So for that reason, it's very important that you make sure that you include um, sub, you know, some sort of a contingent condition there. And so what you would do is say subject to finance or subject to, you know, whatever it is, subject to due diligence or subject to finance is the, probably the best one because if you're unable to secure finance to complete the deal, then you have the ability to just walk away from the contract. This is something that is important because otherwise the owner could come in and just force you to buy the property. And if you're not able to buy the property, then the courts can actually come down on you pretty hard for basically agreeing terms with somebody and not being able to complete and it's it's breach of contract and you can actually get yourself in in a bit of trouble there now as i mentioned no matter where you're listening around the world all of these rules may differ so this is not something that you should take from this uh, podcast as advice you should really just go out and just check all of those little things but i'm giving you the principles here of how it works now in the event that it is not assignable it's all is not lost because if you have actually uncovered a good deal, then the reality is you'll you'll be able to find an investor who can basically put you in funds to close the deal and then you simply transfer the property onto him. And that would be basically a second agreement that you would draw up. So you'd have your agreement with the owner and then you would have a new agreement with the investor who's going to buy it and you would sort of say, he would have an agreement that I am going to give you X number of thousand so that you can buy this property plus pay this, you know, the the taxes and whatever it is that you need to pay on top, the closing costs, we'll say. And in return for that, you're going to transfer the property to me as soon as it is in your name. And that the problem with that is that there's going to be two sets of 
fees. First of all, you're going to have to play. You're going to have to pay your lawyer that closes the deal for you, and then you're going to have to the the investor is going to have to pay a lawyer for his side of the transaction, and also there's going to be probably two sets of taxes on that as well. Now, during the 2000s, we used to avoid those taxes by doing a thing called resting in contract, meaning that you didn't actually complete the deal and you didn't go and um, notify the authorities that you would com- that you had completed this deal, and that was just a way of getting around having to pay what we had called stamp duty at the time. And stamp duty in those days was a whopping 9%. So on a big deal, that was a really, really substantial amount of money. And so the idea of paying stamp duty twice was just ridiculous. And so we used to do this thing where it was resting on contract. But um, nowadays, you'll actually find it very difficult to do that. Most of those things, those loopholes and stuff have all been um, knocked out now. Getting into just a particular example, I think it's probably useful to be able to um, explain this in um, in terms of, say, you're going out finding a deal. As I mentioned, first of all, these tend to be uh, distressed properties. And so what you're going to have with a distressed property is that the owner of the property, say, for example, it's somebody that bought at the top of the market and they just owe so much money that they cannot afford to pay for a state, an estate agent, they cannot pay for pay. They can't afford to pay for marketing. They can't afford to pay for lawyers. All of that kind of stuff. They're just you know basically they're trying to keep their head above water, and so for that reason, they're not going to go out and they're not going to find uh, an estate agent who's going to charge them two percent or whatever because they may not have that money. And second of all. Estate agents tend to say, oh, you know, we want to go and put an advertisement in, you know, this website or in this newspaper or in our window or whatever it is. And there's a cost to that. And they'll want photographers to go in and take some nice photographs of the property. All of that costs money. And all of that is something that these guys generally cannot afford. And that is why they will typically put a sign up in their own garden saying something like for a property for sale or rent. And that is a kind of a, a sure enough giveaway that this is what it is. It's these guys are not using the stage agents. They're not using mainstream marketing. And therefore, there's a good chance that this is somebody who's kind of in a bit of difficulty financially and not able to um, use a mainstream uh, agent for it. And so they're keeping their options open because they're strapped for cash. They, you know, if somebody comes along and offers them rent, they'll take that, but they would prefer to sell and just get themselves out of the situation they're in. So by not placing it on the open market, that actually gives you the advantage, I guess. If you are in a local area and you're, you know, just if you're interested in this business, you will start to kind of drive around and you'll be what's known as driving for dollars. It's you know, you're driving around, you're looking for these kind of opportunities, you're driving up and down streets, you're just looking for the telltale signs that make you think that this property is either abandoned, or it's, you know, somebody has moved out, and nobody has come in to re-rent the place or anything like that. And it's just sitting there. And for a, a lot of reasons, first of all, the property might be in a terrible state. Say if you had a long-term tenant living in a property and they lived there for 20 or 30 years and then they had died or something like that. Usually the property is in such a terrible state um, that you're that the owner is not able to afford to bring it up to standard. 
um, it, you know, to get it painted, new kitchens, new bathrooms, all of that kind of stuff might cost 20,000 or whatever it is. Because it costs so much, the person is just not in a position to do any of that work and wants to sell the property as it is. And that is where the advantage comes for somebody like you, if you're interested in this kind of market. What you do is um, you go in, you have a look at this property and you start to run the numbers in your head. Say, let's say for example, using the figure 100,000, we'll say this property, it's in pretty poor condition. You need to put in new windows, you need to put in new kitchen, something like that, whatever it is. And say you can get this property for 100,000, but the actual neighborhood itself is normally at say 170,000. So there's a 70,000 price differential. And you'd be looking at that going, whoa, you know, this is a really good bargain. I'm going to do, I'm going to, you know, try and buy this. So you go in and you have a look, you say 100,000 to buy this property. You have to start working out now, what are your costs? What will a new kitchen cost? What price can you do that for? What will the windows cost? What will painters cost? What will the various jobs that you need to do? And let's say, I'm just going to use a figure. It sounds pretty low, this figure, but just for the purpose of this exercise, say it's, say it's 25,000. Okay. So that is your cost to refurb, uh, decorate and do all the bits and pieces that you want to make the property stand out like a normal property that should be worth 175,000 in that area. So potentially now I'm, I'm excluding costs of, you know, stamp duty or, you know, taxes and, uh, and legal fees and all that. I'm just excluding all that to keep this example simple, but you can see now that 175,000 is the value in the area. And your all-in costs at this stage would be around 125,000. So you're looking at about a 50,000 profit. And if you have the money to do that deal, that looks like a fantastic B or 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 deal, where you go in, you buy, you refurb, then you rent out the property, and then when it's rented and you're getting the money in, you go to your bank and you get them to refinance it at the new higher value of 175. And that should release you a load of cash that you can go and do this again. But the people that are doing these kind of either wholesale deals or uh, deal sourcing, they are the people that don't have the money to actually go through with this deal. Because why would you? Why would you give up the opportunity to, to make that 50,000 um, unless you just don't have the money? So instead, what you do is you're not walking away from the deal. What you do is you think, OK, let's look at this from the point of view of an investor who is looking to do a B or, or, or opportunity himself or herself. You take the 175 and you deduct, say, what would you consider to be reasonable? 20% return? I would say 20% is a pretty good return on a uh, on our B or, or, or. So you might sort of say, okay, if you deduct 20% from 175, that, that arrives at the figure of 140,000. So a person would be prepared to pay 140,000 all in including the refurb works for that property, uh, because when they've done that, the actual property is worth 175. So basically there's like a 35,000 profit for the investor there. And if you're able to buy the property for a hundred and the refurb costs are 25 grand, then the difference between 125 and the 140 that the investor is prepared to pay, that's a 15,000 difference. And basically that 15,000 is what you could charge as a fee to the investor. Um, now you've obviously got to make sure that you get your figures right. But if, if, 
if you're you know good at your job and you actually know how to do all of this and if you can show that if you've got to be able to demonstrate this because you need to convince the investor but what what you do is you say to the investor i'd like you to pay me 115,000 for this property that's 100 for the owner and 15 grand for you and what he will do then is he'll spend 25,000 on the refurb bringing it up to a total of 140 and the property is worth 175. So he has a 35,000 profit or 20% um, on the amount of money. Um, and that looks like a good deal. So you can see it's obviously better to be an investor because as an investor, you would have made 50,000. But instead, as somebody without a penny to put into this deal, you're going to end up with 15,000. And so it, it's not a bad way for you to kind of get started in the market. Um, if you're, you know, if you're interested in getting into this game, then this is probably a good way for you to learn the ropes, to understand, you know, what refurbished costs are, because you'll have to go out and you'll have to do all your homework because you're not going to convince an investor just because, you know, you've picked a couple of figures out. You have to actually go out into the market and actually run these assessments and, and start to figure out exactly how much can I get a kitchen for? How much can I get bathrooms for? Where can I get windows? What, can, what does it cost to paint, you know, so many rooms in a house? How much can I carpet the place for? When you know all of those costs yourself, then you can actually run these sums very, very quickly and you should be able to do a pretty good job on a convincing an investor because if the investor goes out and does all of this homework, he'll come up with the same prices as you. Or you can say, look, that's, that's wrong. You can get that price over there better or whatever it is. Now, the only thing to remember, obviously, is that your relationships and your reputation in this business are key. If you screw up and miscalculate or just get it wrong, like say say you miscalculate and you, you think that a kitchen can be bought for, you know, two grand or something and it's actually 10 grand, you're going to look like either a complete idiot in the eyes of the investor or worse, the investor is going to think you were trying to screw him over. And that's basically going to be the last time you'll ever deal with that investor again. And so you really have to make sure that you work the numbers correctly and just make sure that this is a is a win-win deal that you're doing. You're going to come away with 15 grand and the investor is going to make 35 grand and they're going to end up with a nice property that they bought at a discounted price. And, uh, and so that is essentially the way you should go about it. So the whole question is, is wholesaling or deal sourcing, is it for you? And I do think... It's a good way to look at getting into the market. If you'd like to become an investor yourself and a person who does all of this, the big hurdle is usually finding the money to put to put a deal together in the first place. And if, you know, ideally the best thing to do would be to partner up with an investor. But if you've got no money at all to put into a deal, then this might be a nice way to, to build up a little bit of a reserve and figure out how to get into the market yourself. And at some point in the future, you can possibly do this all on your own and you can be the guy making the 50 grand rather than, you know, just getting a fee for finding the deal. If you're if you're looking, if you want to get good in an, at this in a certain area, you need to go out and you need to know the refurb costs, but you also need to know the value of the properties on that street. You need to know, you know, what does a four bedroom property sell for? What is a three bedroom? What is a two bedroom? You need to know what the rents are for those same size properties. You need to know the good areas. You need to know the bad areas. You need to know where's the nearest school, where's the nearest bus stop. All of that stuff helps just to 
input the you know the data into your brain into your computer so that you can figure out what a comparable price is and you've got to be careful doing this because sometimes one side of the street is more valuable than the other because for example the sun you know sets in the evening garden on one side of the street and in the other side you're in the shade and it's you, you can't sit out in the evening and enjoy the sun that makes one side of the street more valuable than the other and all of this stuff all has to be kind of worked into your into your model so that you understand what uh, what you stand you know what the price is going to be and make a good stab at it and obviously you're going to make mistakes so it's just something that you're going to have to look at a lot of deals in order to get familiar with this and get better and um, the next thing to ask yourself is should you you know the big question is do you find the investor or do you find the deal first which is the more which is the more important one to find and this is something that I've been asked before, and it's it's a really good question. And the reality is, is you need to be doing a little bit of both. Um, you need to be out there doing your work and researching deals and doing your comparables and looking at all that kind of stuff so that you're really able to talk the talk with investors. And you need to be talking to investors. You need to be reaching out to people that um, perhaps, you know, your local estate agent can kind of give you an idea. Or if you just go to, you know, if you're looking in, um, if you're looking at planning permission notices that are up on buildings and things like that, you can often find the name of the investor that's, you know, doing the work on this property, doing the work on another property. And you can eventually find that there's a couple of names that actually pop up a lot. And that could be a person who is like the big investor in that area. And so you need to build, start building relationships and rapport with these people. And the reason I say that is because you can't go to an investor with an opportunity unless you have some understanding of what it is that they're, you know, they're looking for. What's their sweet spot? Like if somebody invests maximum 100,000 in any deal, then there's no point you going to them with a 200,000 deal. But you won't know that unless you've actually had a discussion with them. Then what's their risk tolerance? I mean, how much of a profit do they look for? What is their preferred deal type? What is their preferred location? What's their preferred size? Is it two bed or is it four bed? You know, all of this stuff is something that you can get to know when you've been sitting with an investor over, say, a coffee, or if you're, you know, you figure out a way to go and get in front of these people and you start to understand their personality. Are they going to be easy to deal with? Are these people that are just kind of really you know, uh, just difficult people. And are they going to be, you know, getting in the way? Are they going to be kind of standing on your toe the whole time? Or are they going to be somebody who's you know, in the background and is just happy to let you do your work? And then you bring them the deal and they'll be happy enough to go through with it. All of that stuff can be figured out in advance so that you don't go and enter into a deal with somebody who turns out to be the nightmare kind of investment partner and who you end up having a big falling out with anyway. And, um, you know, all of this stuff anyway, it's it's a long game, this. You, you, you're not going to do this overnight. This is something that requires time and requires patience. And as I've said before, patience and discipline. You, The big thing is, is you've got to go and build trust with these people. I can tell you, if you come to me in the morning time and say, Gavin, Gavin, I've got a, I've got a deal for you, but I need the money this week. 
That is the biggest turnoff to it. It might be a fantastic deal, but I am not going to enter into any deal with only a couple of days of notice. It's just not the way it works because I have no idea who you are. I have no idea. You know, I before today, I didn't know who you were. Suddenly you're looking for money from me. So that is not the way to go about it. You need to build relationships with them before you need the money so that when it comes to the point that you're actually you know, you found a deal, it looks suitable, you understand what it is they need, you understand what it is, you know, their, their risk tolerance, their sweet spot, you understand all this and you've identified this, it looks like the perfect deal for this person. And then you go to them and you say, hey, John or Susan or whatever it is, say, I've, I've been thinking about our conversations that we've had in the last few months and I think I found a deal just for you. It looks like it ticks all the boxes. Would you be interested? And that's the way to go about it so as they don't feel under pressure and that, you know, they're not the last person on the uh, on the planet Earth that you've kind of gone to and you're desperate to get this thing. As soon as you look desperate, it's the worst way to kind of go about it. Puts you in a weakened position and it just means that you're probably going to end up with a reduced profit because if you need something desperately, that's that's a sign. People see blood in the water and they just they tend to walk away or they tend to you know drive a very hard bargain. And uh, so getting to know them, obviously, the the real benefit of getting to know people like that is that if you're a young guy or girl who's only starting out, the real benefit here is that they will see that you're out there, you're working hard, you're, you're, you're uncovering deals, you're not bringing them every piece of crap that comes along, you're actually looking for the good deals. If you go to them with crappy deals, if you haven't done your homework, if you've been pretty sloppy around your due diligence, that's just going to make you look like a complete idiot. And the next time you go to them, they're just going to be like, no, thanks. They won't even take your call. You've got to make sure that you go to them with the right stuff that, and the kind of deal that you would do yourself if you had the money. And that is the way to do it. And what you will f- probably find is if you've, if you've done them, if you've served them well, they'll be back for more. And what you really want is to get to the point where you've built up trust and, and they kind of like you, trust you. They're going to sort of say, here, would you like to invest in the next deal with us and maybe become partner with us? Or, you know, you could end up in some sort of a situation where you're doing stuff together with these people as a kind of a partner rather than just looking for a fee. You might actually now have money to put into a deal with them on a 50-50 venture or whatever. Remember, guys, it is a long game. This is not something that you do in a couple of weeks. You should be looking at this as a kind of a long-term game and further to you know the conversation I had with Adam Lawrence last week this is the kind of thing that you know he's he's been 10 years at this game but he's now built up to 430 apartments and he aims to have 10,000 apartments in his portfolio in another 10 years or whatever it is and you don't do that by stepping on toes by being sloppy by you know trying to ram a poor deal down someone's neck that is done through you know, by having integrity and really kind of going at it in a very um, comprehensive way, making sure that you've done your homework and that this is a deal that you would do yourself if you had the money and therefore you're treating their money as, as you would treat your own. So I don't know. Hope you guys, hope you guys found that useful. It is uh, Saturday evening and uh, so tomorrow is Sunday, Easter Sunday. So I'm going to wrap it up here. And uh, I hope you guys have a great Easter. Um, I'm hoping that um, some of you are listening to this on Monday, Easter Monday. And so 
That is it for episode number 49 of Behind the Facade. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my number one ask is to leave a review or simply share the episode with somebody you think may benefit from it. In the show notes, you'll find links to the various things discussed today. And if you have a question or topic you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group Behind the Facade community. Alternatively, as always, I'm on social media, Gavin J. Gallagher, and that includes my new YouTube channel where it's been going quite well, actually. Last week, I posted a couple of videos and uh, I had a load of new subscribers come in. So if you want to just check out the channel, I'd really appreciate it. You'll find that uh, Gavin J. Gallagher on YouTube. And uh, that's it, guys. I'm wishing you all a happy Easter and catch you all next week. Mm -hmm.